0: would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 is where we'll be at this morning as we continue through the book of Galatians. And let's begin together by, by reading that passage and then we'll, we'll talk about it together. Galatians 2 verse 1 reads, Then This is Paul speaking, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek was compelled to be circumcised but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in christ jesus in order to bring us into bondage but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you but from those who were of high reputation what they are makes no difference to me god shows no partiality well those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circum to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who were reputed to be. Gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Interesting passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at this morning. Um, as way of introduction, I want to say I am thankful that I am married to my wife. I love my wife. She is a encouragement to me. She um, encourages me when I need it. She confronts me when I need it. Uh, she is a great mother to our children. And I'm also thankful that I'm married to my wife because it means that um, I'm married and I don't have to worry about dating. Um, dating is something that people seem to look forward to and enjoy in the midst of it, but it's really kind of a not fun experience for the most part. I'm thankful that I don't have to worry about that. I love these conversations and wondering if someone likes you or not or if this is the person that you're supposed to marry and all of these difficult conversations i'm thankful that i am married and i don't have to worry about that i have single friends that have to worry about that and um just thankful that that's not on my mind ever um so god bless you all who are young and have to worry about your future spouse um but uh, it's it's funny in in those dating relationships there's always these conversations you have to have we used to call on the night this is silly, but is smiling. because She knows what I'm going to say, but in high school and in college, they were called DTRs. Has anyone ever heard of that? The, the define the relationship conversation. That's what DTR stands for. Define the relationship. You get to this point where you have to sit down with this person and it's extremely awkward, but it has to happen because it's kind of like, well, I like you. Do you like me? And you never know what they're going to say. And it could be really bad. It could end poorly. It's kind of this, this crucial conversation in the life of your relationship that will either make it live or or die. Um, and that's kind of, sometimes those go well and sometimes they don't. I can remember a very crucial conversation in Andrew and I's relationship. And it was, um, we'd been dating for almost a year. And we had gone to, uh, she came up to Chicago for Founders Week, which is a conference that uh, Moody put on. And um, there was a a sermon that happened that we were both sitting in that, God really used to to open our eyes to a lot of different things and, and brought us to this place of having one of these crucial conversations. Um, we were dating, so we knew that we liked each other, but it was this conversation where we really opened up our hearts to one another and shared about the past and the present and the future and where God had us and what, what we'd been through and who we were and just really opened up ourselves to one another. And it's one of those things when you open your heart to someone and you show them who you really are, that's, that's kind of scary. Will they accept me? Will they reject me? It was one of those conversations where we we opened up in that way, and and God used that to just help us see that that He was bringing us together for life. It was a beautiful thing, and I, I look back on that. And we that happened in February, and a month later we were engaged to be married. It was kind of the the thing that sealed the deal. That said, yes, this is what God has for us. And that conversation could have gone a totally different way. It could have been a, a terrible experience where that was the end of the relationship. But it ended up leading us to become married that, a crucial conversation I, I think in some ways that it, it's a it's a weak parallel but in some ways that's what's happening here and in, in the second chapter of galatians Paul's describing this crucial conversation that that happened in the early church and if it would have gone one way or the other it could have really shaped the way that the the church would have formed the way that the gospel would have gone forth in the future but god is obviously sovereign and in control of these things and and the way that this conversation goes secures the gospel and 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 causes the church to continue to move forward as in its growth um, there in the early stages. And what we're going to see in this passage is that gospel ministry, the proclamation of the gospel, we'll just say gospel ministry demands clarity and cooperation. Gospel ministry demands clarity and cooperation. We're just going to talk about those two themes. I don't really have solid points that we're going to really point out clearly, but clarity and cooperation. So this will be a little bit of a different sermon. But I think if we are people that want to honor God in our lives, if we are a church that wants to be the church that God has called us to be, if we want to be a church that, that makes disciples, that proclaims the good news and helps people grow in their faith, then we need to be sure of the gospel. We need to be clear on what the gospel is, and we need to cooperate with one another and with the church at large in our community and in the world. And I believe that's, that's what the message here is in Galatians chapter 2. We stated last week that this section, if you looked back in uh, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, then through Galatians chapter 2, all the way about down to verse 14, this is kind of autobiographical. It's, it's historical. Paul is describing his life and experience after he came, to Christ, what, what, that ha- what happened in his life that led to his apostleship and his becoming a, a missionary of sorts. So let's kind of rehash that because you look at the beginning of chapter 2, it says, then. So he's continuing this, this conversation. You remember, of course, Paul's story begins as Saul. Saul was a zealous Jew. He was a Pharisee and he was fighting against the followers of Jesus. We talked last week about how he wasn't just trying to, to hurt the followers of Jesus. He was trying to wipe out Christianity. He was saying that this is something that is opposed to Judaism, which I believe is true, and I don't want it on the face of the earth. That was how adamant he was about it. And so in the midst of traveling to Damascus to to see this accomplished, Jesus appears to him. The resurrected Christ appears to him and blinds him and then leads him to Met to Damascus and sovereignly leads Ananias to come and to help him to see the truth. and The scales fall off his eyes, and he begins to see again physically and spiritually. He understands who Jesus is. And instead of um, the way that it, it says it here in, in chapter 1, it says, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith. So the persecutor of the faith became a preacher of the faith. So in the midst of, of, of all this fighting, Jesus gets a hold of him. And, and Paul, it, you see here, the, this the main point of, of this passage we said last week was that the gospel is divine, not human in origin. Paul is trying to explain the fact that he didn't make this up. This wasn't something that he came up with. And so he's going to great lengths to talk about where he was and how what, what happened to him. So he says that, first of all, he didn't go up to Jerusalem. So Paul is, comes to Christ and then he, he goes to Arabia, which is north. I don't really know what Paul did in Arabia. I wonder if maybe he went there for some solitude. Um, he'd been raised in, in Judaism. He was, a again, a Pharisee, a zealous Jew. And now Jesus has come in and, and changed his entire perspective on the Old Testament. Maybe he went to, to go back to the Old Testament now with the lens of, of Jesus over top of that, understanding what, is, what does this mean now? How, is, how have things changed? And he says that he went um, to Arabia and then later on uh, he returned back to damascus and then in verse 18 of chapter 1 it says 3 years later he ended up in jerusalem so he's saying i didn't get to jerusalem until 3 years later so he goes to jerusalem he spends 15 days with peter where he also meets james there in jerusalem and then he heads north again to syria and cilicia near his birthplace in tarsus so he's up he's up north again um, and those in judea he says didn't even know If they they saw me in a crowd, they wouldn't be able to recognize me. But they just kept hearing that this guy who persecuted the faith has now become a proclaimer of the faith. And they've glorified God because of me. So then in verse 2, it says, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. So verse 18, he says, Three years after my conversion, I went to Jerusalem and met with Peter. And then he says, After an interval of 14 years, I went back to Jerusalem. So again, we're just painting this historical picture. I hope this is intriguing to you. I, it's intriguing to me because I just think about Paul, a real person traveling all around. He's meeting with Peter and James. How cool is that? Just, I would love to be in on those conversations. But anyways, 14 years later, he ends up in Jerusalem. This is probably actually not 14 years after that, that first visit, but 14 years after his conversion. So a total of 14 years. So he was... He went to Jerusalem 3 years after his conversion and then he went again 11 years after his conversion. Now, there's debate as to when this happened. Let's talk about this because the Bible stands up under all this historical scrutiny. We can we can see where Paul was at and and what was going on in his life. So there there were essentially four trips that Paul made to Jerusalem. The first one is right here in verse 18 when he goes to visit Peter. The second one is in Acts chapter 11. If you if you don't mind, turn to that one, a little bit backwards in your Bible. There, Acts chapter eleven. It tells us about his second journey to Jerusalem after his, uh, after Jesus saves him. Uh, Acts chapter eleven, and in verse twenty-seven, it reads like this. In verse twenty-seven, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, of course, Antioch is north, but whenever people talk about Jerusalem, they say they came down because of its elevation. That's just a thing that always bothered me, but it makes sense when you understand that. So the, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the region of Claudius. And in the proportion... And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So that's the second trip. They go with this contribution to those in Jerusalem. Third trip is in Acts 15. You can turn over there if you like. This third trip, Acts 15. It says, some men came down from Judea. And began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Sounds similar to what's going on in the book of Galatians, doesn't it? And when Paul and Barnabas had great uh, dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem, to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. What follows then is what's called the Jerusalem Council, where Paul and Barnabas get there. They talk about this issue of, circumcision and obedience to the law and how does that tie in with the gospel so that's paul's third trip to jerusalem the fourth trip to jerusalem which is his last trip to jerusalem because that is when he goes um and is imprisoned and eventually appeals to caesar and is taken to rome where he is martyred for the faith so there's four trips so if you go back to galatians chapter two he says after an interval of 14 years i went again to jerusalem so we know it's not The first trip, because he talks about that in chapter 1, verse 18. And we know it's not the last trip, because that's when he was imprisoned, and that's happened before this. So which trip was it? Was it the trip in Acts chapter 11, or was it the trip in Acts chapter 15? We have to try to discern this. Let me give you a few reasons why I actually think it's the one in in chapter 11. I think it makes most sense. Um, Again, what's Paul trying to do? He's trying to say that the gospel isn't something I made up, and it's also not something that the apostles gave to me, that it's just their... Something that they made up too. So if he's, and he's tracking through and he's saying, I was in Jerusalem, uh, after three years and then I was there 14 years later. Now, if it was that third trip, then Paul's lying. He's not telling them about a middle trip that he went to. And suddenly his credibility would be totally undercut. He's trying to be very clear. This is the contact that I had with Jerusalem. So I think it makes sense to say that he would, he wouldn't skip over that. He would definitely tell them about that. So he tells them, I went down, uh, this this time so another reason is um if if he had if it was talking about the jerusalem council he would have mentioned that because that was a major decision by the church that kind of solved the whole issue that the galatians were dealing with but he never mentions the jerusalem council um, in acts 15 it says that they were going because of issues in the church but here paul says i went because of a revelation he had some sort of a revelation that caused him to go to jerusalem it may have been that revelation from agabus you remember what it said in acts 11 that agabus had this vision that said there's going to be a famine all throughout the land and so they decided to send relief it may have been that it may have been something specific to paul that said you need to go to jerusalem um another reason is that this fits the time frame it says that the paul says um in chapter one you have been so quickly i'm surprised that you have been so quickly drawn away so this is pretty soon after his trip to Galatia, which would fit within that time frame, and the meeting that's mentioned here in Acts two, we'll see, it was private. He says he meets with the pillars in private, those who were of reputation, but the the Jerusalem Council is more of a public event. Okay, now why do we go through all that? What's the point in in trying to determine why when Paul was there? I think it shows us that it shows first of all that Paul is is being truthful. He's telling us where he went, when he went. He's saying that I went to Jerusalem for this specific reason. I think it also shows us that the Bible lines up. Acts and Galatians are not in conflict. These The the story is, is a whole, and the Bible can can stand up underneath this kind of scrutiny. There's there's this beautiful um, cohesion to all of it. It comes together, and we see how this all fits together and, and where Paul was and what was going on. So it says here, if you're reading Galatians 2, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along also, which again, I think is Acts chapter 11. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So Paul goes because of this revelation, he goes in private to those who were of reputation, which we're going to see later uh, who they were. And he presents to them the gospel that he was preaching. Now, this is where it gets kind of confusing. So just think about it in these terms. There's three groups that are present here. The first group is the group of Antioch. And who's in that group? We've got Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. So that's group number one. Group number two is a group that we would probably call the the Judaizers. Um, Paul calls them the false brethren in in verse 4, but it was because of the false brethren. Literally, it would mean pseudo-brethren pseudo-christians they're fake christians they're saying they're christians but they're not the judaizers were were those who were who were saying um that you have to obey the law of moses specifically you need to be circumcised if you're going to be truly saved so that's who the the second group is the false brethren they're causing issues all over the place causing issues in galatia and here they're causing issues in jerusalem and the third group is uh, what's called those of reputation or then later on we see them called the pillars of the church specifically that's that's peter james and john these three pillars of the church in jerusalem okay so you got the three groups you've got uh, the group from antioch paul barnabas titus you've got the second group the false brethren the judaizers those that are trying to impose these things on the church and then you've got the third group which is the pillars of the church the men of reputation peter james and john and there's this This kind of coming together of these three groups. and This is what happens. This is this crucial conversation that's about to go down here in Jerusalem. This is an important point in the history of the church. So we might imagine this this conference going on. This private group, you know, Paul and and Barnabas and Titus are there and they meet together with Peter and James and John and they're going to have this conversation about the gospel that Paul is preaching. Um, And it says here, it says, that the, the false brethren, verse 4, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. I get the picture of playing backyard football. And you're in your huddle. You're getting your play together. And you know those guys that are always coming up right by the ball, trying to listen in to hear, well, what what's the play they're going to do? We want to Because we want to sabotage it. We want to destroy the play. We don't, we don't want them to, to score this touchdown. So they're kind of sneaking in and, and listening. The language is actually that of of espionage, of, of spying. Um, so you're thinking Mission Impossible and James Bond kind of stuff, where they, they dress up like someone, they get these elaborate masks, and they look like someone totally different, and they sneak in to try to thwart all the plans that are going on. And they may have been in this, this private council. They may have just, you know, talked to, to Peter and James and John and said, oh, we think we should be there when, when Paul's there talking to you. Or maybe, you know, you might be more dramatic and you might think about them kind of, busting in the back door as this conversation is going on. And they come, they come storming in and they say, Peter, James and John, we want you to know something. We want you to know something about Titus. He's a Gentile and he's not circumcised and he doesn't keep the law of Moses. And Paul and Barnabas are up there in Antioch and they're telling people they can come to Jesus by faith alone and they don't have to keep the law of Moses. They're telling people they don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul is, is, he's undermining the faith. Now, Peter, James, and John, what are you going to do about this? If you press pause for a moment, this is that crucial point. What's going to happen here? What's the decision that's going to be made? Because because if they say, well, you know, Paul, you're wrong. You need to start telling people to obey the law of Moses or else they're not truly Christians. Then then what happens? And Paul's concerned about this. That's what he says in in verse 2. He says, I did so in private uh, to those who are of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, Paul is not concerned that his message is wrong. He's concerned that if if there's this conflict going on and the Judaizers win, then this whole thing is going to fall apart because we can't have Antioch and Jerusalem in conflict. We can't have this. If, if this is happening, we have to have this cooperation. If that's not going on, then this whole thing is going to implode on itself. So he's not afraid that he's wrong. He's afraid that this conflict is going to cause issues within the early church, so much so that it could destroy it. Of course, we know that God is, is sovereign and his, his, Paul's fear here is probably well, maybe exaggerated a little bit. He, know he knows God is in control of the situation, but still it's a real legitimate fear. What's going to happen? What are Peter and, and James and John going to say? Because this is good, this is crucial. So we can kind of unpause the scene, go back to seeing these Judaizers there and, and you might imagine Paul and he, he looks from the Judaizers, And he looks over to to Peter and to James and Cephas. And, and there's this, this moment of silence where he's waiting. What, what are they going to say? And you might imagine Peter talking first because Peter is always the one that talks first, isn't he? And maybe Peter said something like, because he's kind of blunt, uh, maybe he said, so what? So he's not circumcised. We're not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in christ alone titus is as much a follower of jesus as anyone else it has nothing to do with whether or not he's been circumcised or whether or not he keeps the law because we're not saved by works we're saved by grace maybe paul takes a lets out a sigh of relief and looks to barnabas and titus and kind of smiles and says all right you know this is this could have gone bad but it, it went the way that we expected it to we went we knew that they were on our team we just are so happy that these these guys came in and they were infiltrating they were seeking to spy out our liberty but their plan has been thwarted because we're together with these with these brothers now um, he says that these are the the um the pillars of the church and it says that if you look at um verse 5 says we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so again to get this picture these guys come in and i think that the we i want to take that we as as those those the first and the third group as this group from antioch with paul and barnabas and titus and the pillars of the church in jerusalem james and peter and john they said we did not yield that those people we didn't yield in subjection to that group to the judaizers to these pseudo brethren we didn't yield to, for even an hour we, we let them present their case but we said you know what we're not discussing this Because this is not an issue. And why did they do it? It tells us why. We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. We didn't do it because the gospel was at stake. The Judaizers didn't come busting in the back door and say, we want to tell you something about Paul and Barnabas and Titus. They sing modern praise choruses at their church in Antioch, and we think they should be singing more old hymns. I love old hymns, but that's not a gospel issue. They didn't come in and say they've got red carpet up there and we like blue carpet in our churches. It was it was a gospel issue. It wasn't something that was not worth dividing over. This was an issue that they said, we have to be clear on this. We have to clarify the gospel. This is extremely important. We sang uh, the solid rock this morning, and, and it gives us the reason why we cannot yield on issues like this. Um, one of the commentaries I read by a man named uh, Phil Reichen, He says he says this. He says the old hymn by Edward Moat claims that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But our hope is also built on nothing more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Back in chapter one, Paul told the Galatians to accept no alternatives. Here in chapter two, he tells them to accept no additives. Additives is uh, you know, you think about your food on your milk cartons that say there's no artificial growth hormone added to this milk because we want pure milk. Or you look at the outside of things and it says there's no preservatives because we want our food to be pure. And so, so we need, we too need a, a pure, unadulterated gospel that says we are all sinners, that we are dead in our sins. And unless Jesus comes and saves us, unless he descends to the earth in the incarnation, lives the life that we could not live, and then dies on the cross for our sins, and we accept that by faith, unless that happens, then we are not saved, and we need to protect that gospel and add nothing to it. Timothy George is another commentator who talks about this issue of adding to the gospel, and he says, human beings are forever trying to add something to God's completed work of salvation. It may be, Jesus Christ and the Mass, or Jesus Christ and water baptism, or Jesus Christ and good works, or Jesus Christ and a charismatic experience. Paul's argument is that nothing, absolutely nothing, can be mingled with Christ as a ground for our acceptance with God. Strong statement, isn't it? I have an illustration. We have some friends in town. Their, their kids are here with us. So I have an illustration I want the kids to help me out with here. Um, you ready for this? This is easy. Now, if I take the color yellow and I add um, yellow and I add blue to it, what color do I get? Green. Yellow and blue make green. Is it yellow anymore if I add blue to it? No, it's green at that point. Now, what if I take um, yellow and I add red to it? Everyone can participate in this one. Yellow and red make is it any longer yellow? No, it's it's orange at this point. What about red and blue? It's violet or, or purple. I like violet. That's good. I would have said purple, but violet sounds prettier. Um, it's violet. It's purple. It's not red anymore. If you take the gospel and you add something to it for your grounds of salvation, it's not the gospel anymore. Just like yellow and, and blue make green, it's not yellow anymore. It's green. It's something totally different, except no additives. You can't add anything to the gospel without completely distorting it we have to clarify this message why so that the truth of the gospel will remain with us this is a gospel issue accept no additives clarify the gospel so in contrast to these Judaizers the the pillars of the church agree that that they and paul are preaching the exact same thing um, and by verse 6 the these um these false apostles are, are not there anymore they're kind of that that little excursus in verses 3 through 5. But in verse 6, Paul kind of sounds a little, I don't know, the word, he sounds a little snooty, sounds a little uppity in what he's saying. He's almost a little rude. Listen to verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. What does that mean? I mean, he's talking about the pillars of the church. And he's saying that these who are of reputation, who they are makes no difference to me, because they didn't add anything to me. Is that how he's talking? Well, we have to first think about what's what's one of the issues in Galatia? What are they saying about Paul? They're saying he's not a real apostle. They're saying that he's kind of a, a secondary apostle. He doesn't have the same authority that these other guys do. And what he's trying to establish is he's saying, no, we both have the same authority. There's no there's no partiality with God. They're of High reputation and people hold him in high regard But God's made me an apostle too He says that in um, in verse 8 He says for we, who, he who Speaking of God speaking of Jesus He who effectually worked for Peter in his Apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked For me also to the Gentiles He says the same God who made Peter an apostle made me an apostle We're, we're equal that God doesn't show Partiality so he's trying he's again saying That, that God has made me an Apostle just to, as much as he's made These guys an apostle my authority is there." As well, But that other line, well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. He's not saying they were useless to me. Like it was a waste of my time to go to Jerusalem and spend time with them. Uh, Surely there was mutual encouragement that went on and and talking about the, the move forward of the gospel. What he's saying is they didn't add anything to my gospel. They didn't tell me I needed to preach something else. They didn't tell me that I had to tell people to be circumcised. We realized we were preaching the exact same thing. We were talking about the same stuff, that the gospel that we were preaching was the same. It was by Jesus' death and rex- resurrection, through repentance and faith, we come to Christ. And that was what they gave him. Didn't, they didn't add anything to me. So I think the language sounds, at least in my translation, sounds like he's a little, um, I don't know, like he's upset about something. But I, he's just saying we're on equal ground. We're both apostles. We both have the authority that God has given us. Um, and they didn't add anything to my gospel so don't think that I'm preaching to you something different than what they are they didn't give me anything more they said yeah what you're preaching Paul is is right uh, paul wasn't looking for some sort of seal of approval from jerusalem uh, you know he wasn't looking for you know this something to add on to all of his messages at the end you know he would preach a message and then stand up and say this message has been approved by those in jerusalem Peter didn't stand up and say, "I'm Peter and I approve Paul's message." You know, like these political things. It, it wasn't something like that. It was, it was that Paul's uh, they they recognized that it was true. You see that um, verse seven. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, it, it was it was evident in and of itself. Peter and and um, James. And I'm getting them all mixed up now. <laughs> um, Peter and James and John didn't come and say, "Yes, you are right, Peter. You have our blessing." They said, "They said," I'm getting them all mixed up. They said, "Paul, yes, you are right. We we are preaching the same thing." And so they just recognized God's work in both of them, that they that He was active in both of the, the their ministries. And it says, "What's the result? Recognizing again, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James." and Cephas and John, who reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So they shake hands. This isn't like a business agreement where they say, okay, we agree. I think it's this this right hand of fellowship, this sign that that we're together. If it's a handshake, it's quickly followed by an embrace that says we're in this together. We're preaching the same gospel. and And now we're we're doing it in different spheres, though. There's there's something unique that's going on here. But it says that that Paul was who he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter is the apostle to the circumcised. God has given them this unique these unique spheres of influence, where Paul is is reaching to to those who are not Jews, and he's bringing them to faith in in Christ, and and Peter is, is reaching out to the Jews, and they're coming to faith. Now, it wasn't like they shook hands, and and Peter said. Um, Okay, Paul, you can preach to the Gentiles, just don't talk to any Jews about the gospel, send them here to Jerusalem, and, and I'll take care of that. And, and Paul, if he encountered someone who was Jewish in, in their ethnicity, that he said, well, I can't talk to you, you need to go talk to Peter. It was just they recognized that God was using them in different ways for the spread of the gospel, and they said, we want to we want to work together on this, because we've clarified that we have the same message. God's given us different spheres of influence and different spheres of ministry, but we want to work together on this they were they were two different assignments one commentator says that the distinction in the sphere in which the gospel was to be preached not a different difference in the type of the gospel so and there's other unity in verse verse 10 it says they only asked us to remember the poor the very thing i also was eager to do so the pillars in the church james and peter and john ask paul to remember the poor now they're not adding something to the gospel saying that remembering the poor is part of what gets us to um, makes us right with god actually what they're doing this is an expression of unity the poor is probably best understood as as the jewish believers in jerusalem there were famines they they, they were reputed all throughout the the new testament they're seen as in poverty as in need and and the church in antioch is constantly sending funds to help the church in jerusalem so this is an expression of unity they're saying we are preaching to the gentiles but those jewish believers we're on the same team we are we're a family and we're going to support them as well we're working together on this now what does this all mean this is a great story in my as i look at it you just think about this this conversation that went on and all the beauty of it but what i think is going on here is that there's this clarity in the gospel that then leads to unity and cooperation in gospel ministry. Paul comes into town and he says, I want to make sure that we are working together on this. But before we do that, we have to make sure that we're preaching the same thing. And if we're preaching the same thing, then let's, let's shake hands, let's embrace, and let's move out into these different spheres that God has given us, the different ways that He's called us to minister. But we're together because we're preaching the same gospel. But what has to happen first is clarity on the gospel. Again, this is this is right, and I think he says it very well. Partnership in the gospel goes only as far as the gospel itself goes, and no further, which is precisely why the apostles took the time to discuss exactly what they were preaching. He says the church can allow diversity of mission only where there is unity of message. The church can allow diversity of mission only where there is unity of message. The truth is we need to cooperate. Is Grace Fellowship Church going to accomplish the evangelization of the world by itself? No, we can't accomplish the evangelization of the Beechwood neighborhood by ourselves. We need to cooperate with others, but we only cooperate based on the clarity of God's word. If if the gospel is clear, if we can talk to someone and they say yes we believe the same gospel we don't add anything to it we're not saying that people have to do this that they have to be baptized to be saved that they have to do all these other things that they have to keep the works of the law to be saved then let's cooperate let's work together for the good of the gospel that's what's going on here they are working together peter and paul are on the same team and they shake hands and they embrace and they say let's do ministry together based on the clarifying clarifying the gospel i think that's that's Our role as the church is we we guard the gospel as a church. What we talked about in in previous weeks, and when we have it clarified, when others come in and they say, "Let's work together." If it's if it's a church or or an organization, we sit down and we say, "Okay, first we need to have this crucial conversation. We need to sit down and we need to make sure that this is clear. And if something you know pops up in that conversation, and they say, "Well, this is what we believe about the basics of of Christianity," and something shows up there, and it's just it's just a little strange and we, we press that point a little bit we realize you know what we're, we're preaching somewhat of a different gospel this is a gospel issue and, and we have to hold firm to it we cannot yield in subjection to them for even an hour why so that the truth of the gospel would remain with us we can't allow additives or subtractions to come in because it will undermine the authority of the gospel that we preach we can't do that for the sake of unity and thinking that we're getting the gospel out more because we unify with people that maybe we disagree with on on core issues. If we do that, we're not getting the gospel out. We're undermining it. We're actually we're undercutting that and, and not getting the gospel out. We're preaching a false gospel. And suddenly we become pseudo-brother, false brethren in the midst. We must clarify the gospel. And that's so much of what Galatians is about is understanding this is what the true gospel is. And when that happens, then we come together. And we shake hands with local churches. There's so many good churches in this in in Louisville. We're not in competition. We're not fighting against them for people to come to our church. We're working together with them. Paul this morning was over at, at, at Victory Memorial to, to pray for their, their new pastor for, for Scott Lamb coming in. We're not in competition with Victory Memorial. Why? Because we have clarified that we're preaching the same gospel. And so we cooperate with them, we work with them. And we ask people to come in to help us in this mission that we're doing, as long as we are clear on the message of the gospel. So when we clarify it, then we continue to cooperate. Um, tradition says, and, and I don't know if it's true or not, but tradition says that Peter and Paul may have actually been executed on the same day during the persecutions by Nero in Rome. It's an amazing thought to think about. If that's true, we know this. They didn't die for two different gospels. Paul wasn't martyred for the gospel to the Gentiles, and Peter wasn't martyred for the gospel to the Jews. They were martyred for the gospel of Jesus Christ together because they were unified on that. They settled that here and they settled it elsewhere. They believed the same gospel of repentance by faith, or repentance to God and faith in Jesus Christ. And it was because of this, because of their their zeal to preserve the gospel, that it led to their cooperation to the preaching of the gospel and ultimately to the fact that we still have the gospel today. Yes, God worked through them. God preserved it, but he preserved it because of conversations like this where they said, we're not yielding for even an hour on this. We're keeping the gospel secure. One of the ways that we clarify and preserve the gospel as a church is through the Lord's table, through the Lord's Supper that we gather together that um, th- this isn't something that is necessary for salvation okay this is not an additive this doesn't make you any more of a christian it's faith by faith alone in christ alone that we are saved but this is a reminder the bread is bread the juice is juice but it is a reminder a reminder that our life is found in jesus in his life and in his death And it's a reminder of our unity as a church, because we all partake of the same bread. We all partake of the same cup, as Paul says, that our unity is based on our common belief in Jesus, that we have clarified the gospel and this is what we agree on. And so we all partake together. We desire um, to, to, to do this, to remind ourselves so that we don't add anything to it. We don't subtract anything from it, that we keep it clear and That we remember what Jesus has done for us, and so as a as a church, um, we would ask that um, if you have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation—again, no additives added to that—you put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, and you've um, you've been baptized as a believer, and you're a member of a local church, then you are willing, to, you are welcome to participate to join us at the table. We have that unity there. We don't put those stipulations on there to create division, uh, to create uh, unneeded fences, but as it says here, to guard the gospel, to make sure that we understand what this is. Um, So if you have put your faith in Christ again and and been baptized and are a member of a local church in good standing, then you are invited to join with us as we celebrate the unity that we have uh, in the gospel.